but the priority is, is that we teach them the word of the Lord. And um, because when they get out there in the world, uh, when they get done with junior high and high school, there is, well, they face it even now, but even more and more voices that are going to try to take them away from the Lord. And it's so critical that they get grounded in God's word. So keep them in prayer. And uh, one of the things that I'm so blessed about is our children's ministry and, and what Heather and um, the teachers, you know, how they teach those kids, the curriculum that they use, Answers in Genesis curriculum, to let them know that the Word of God is true, that they are created, and God loves them and has a plan for them. And, um, and they need to be firmly established in that. And it's a message that we need to be reminded of as well. So that's why we go through the scriptures, and I commend you for making the midweek a part of your life when it's busy, when there's school activities, when there's you know all kinds of things that can keep us at home. But what you do in bringing your kids and bringing your youth here is going to be beneficial. So um, I just want to encourage you in that. So this Sunday, invite somebody out, and we're going to be talking about fathers that are to take the lead in raising our children in the ways of the Lord. So direct um, message to the fathers, and mothers are going to be included in that, and then a message to the children as well um, in their relationship with their parents. So I think that will be tremendously blessed. Speaking about um, voices out there that um, will bring deception and are not um, uh, biblical at all, there's a lot of talk about uh, the Pope coming, I believe in just a few days, isn't it, in the next week or so that he's coming to America. He's coming sometime here very, very soon, and they're getting ready, and you're going to hear a lot of it on the news, and of course, we hear a lot about how the present Pope right now, that he, you know, is bringing change and reforms, and, and ref, you know, he's refreshing and all of this, the message that he's bringing, but this is a message that he gave, and this is, I want to tell you, not to be critical, but to warn you and to be able to minister to those, as I'm sure that the discussion will come up in the workplace and, and other places that, um, that you might be at about the Pope coming and how, you know, he is a caring Pope and, and perhaps that he is and that he is uh, bringing reforms and all of this. But this is what he is saying, and, um, and um, perhaps some of you have already seen this, that he says that the only way to connect with God is through the church and that a personal relationship with Jesus is wrong. And this is what he says. There are those who believe that you can have a personal direct, this is a direct quote, there are those who believe that you can have a personal direct and immediate relationship with Jesus Christ outside the communion and the meditation of the church. These temptations are dangerous and harmful. So what he's saying is that you cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ outside of the church. They are, in the words of the great Pope Paul, uh, this, the six absurd dichotomies. And so, um, um, so he goes on and he says, being a Christian means belonging to the church, and it comes through the church. Also, he has made statements recently, and that's been advertised on, you know, um, you'll hear a lot about it when he comes to America, that he has announced that abortion will be forgiven by the priests during the upcoming holy year. Um, listen, there is forgiveness for abortion. Certainly there is forgiveness. And there's healing that the Lord desires to bring and, and comfort that he brings. But no priest can give forgiveness. And you remember that in the book of Revelation, when Jesus wrote the letters to the seven churches, in Revelation chapter 2, when he was writing to the book of Ephesus, or to the church of Ephesus, that he was commending them on, you know, you stand for truth, you, your work, you labor, um, you um, point out those who are false. He's commending them on all those things. And one of the things that Jesus commended the church of Ephesus at that time on is that you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus says. Now, what's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, Nico means to rule. It's where Nike gets his name, you know, Nike shoes, uh, Nike shoes here. Um, it means to rule. It means I can run faster, I can slam dunk better, you know, that's where they get the name Nike. Not me personally, but if, <laughs> so buy a pair of Nikes, you know, and you, you can rule. So Nico, Nike, 
means to rule. Uh, laetens means laity. Put it together and what do you get? To rule over the laity. And Jesus says, I hate that doctrine. Because what it says is that it puts a man between you and the Lord when we can go personally and directly right to the Lord. So I, I want to give you these things for discussion so you can bring truth to others, not to condemn them, not to, you know, you know, get into a big argument with them, but to very lovingly and very caringly that we give the truth of God's word because these things are going to come up in the conversations at the water cooler or out in the field or wherever. And, um, and you know, I grew up in, in the Catholic church, and so um, these are many things that, of course, um, you know, church can't bring salvation to you. Now, being a part of the church means that you're a believer. That is the church, right? And we've discussed that in our studies. But the church can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And a personal relationship with him and coming and repenting and realizing your need for the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, you should come in faith. That's what brings salvation. But I can't save anyone. Calvary Chapel can't save anyone. The Pope can't save anyone. The Catholic Church can't save anyone. And that's where the deception is. And that's one of the reasons why I give an invitation to, you know, at the end of the services for salvation, because I don't want people to think that they come into Bible study means that they're saved. It's a good thing. And it's good to come to church. And we are the church. But the church is believers in Jesus Christ. And the church cannot save anyone. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we want to make sure that we, you know, take people through the scriptures and give them truth when these things come up. But we do have a Bible study tonight. And Psalm 73 is, Lord, we do come. And Lord, we want to be wise in the day in which we're living in. Because there's a lot of voices out there, religious voices and others, that are telling us to compromise, telling us that uh, we um, don't need to take heed to the scriptures, telling us uh, the wrong message of salvation. And Lord, we're so thankful that we can go through the Bible, your word, and be firmly established in truth, and knowing that the truth of the gospel is given to us very clearly, that it is a need for Jesus Christ us as sinners, because our sin has separated us from God. And we know the gospel says that we're to turn to the only one that can bring forgiveness. It's not a man. It's not a priest. It's not a religious leader. It's Jesus Christ who hung on a cross for us. And as we come to the invitation to him, to believe in him for eternal life, as we surrender our lives to him in faith and who he is, the son of God, and what he did in dying on the cross for our sins and, and put into a grave and he rose again after three days. We know that that faith, a, a living faith, a faith that comes from our hearts, expressed with our mouths, is what brings salvation. So I pray that tonight as we continue to, to look at God's word, that, Lord, that we would be encouraged and comforted and blessed as we go through these psalms, however far that we get, Lord, it's, it's really um, something that we desire to allow you to just speak to us and, um, and Lord, instruct us and uh, bring comfort to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 73 here begins book three of the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms, as you know, is the longest book of the Bible. It's 150 chapters and in the book of Psalms, there are five books um, that we have. So in book one, you have uh, chapters one through 41. And then book two that we just finished takes us from chapter 42 to 72. And now we're going to be in book three. Now, it's interesting because there are some theologians that will correlate the five books of Psalms with the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And why they do that is because in book 1, again, chapters 1 through 41, we see that they will tell you that it correlates with the book of Genesis because it speaks, as we know, that it speaks a lot about creation. The Psalms that we went through in those first 41 Psalms, Psalm 19, for example, that, that the heavens declare your glory, O oh God. So Genesis speaks about how God created the heavens and the earth. So that's where they come up with the correlation. And then in book 2, which I mentioned to you, chapters 42 through 72, that we just got done reading, um, that 
it correlates with the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus tells of the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And as we went through those Psalms in those chapters, many of those Psalms, of course, penned by David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David wrote at least 73 Psalms here of the 150. His names are attributed to 73. He very probably wrote more than 73 but in those psalms that we saw, David, he was writing about, Lord, deliver me from these men that are pursuing me. When he was in that situation of running from his son Absalom, who took the throne away from him, and David had to flee Jerusalem. And also he, he asked for deliverance when Saul, early in his life, when Saul became very jealous and envious of David and wanted to kill David, we saw that David again would write those psalms and he would ask for God's deliverance as Saul and as many as 3,000 men were pursuing David in the wilderness. So that's why it correlates with the book of Exodus. Now as we start book 3, which is Psalms 73 through 89, what we see here is that it correlates with the next book of the Bible, and that is Leviticus. Now, I'm sure that all of you know what the book of Leviticus is about, right? Because we've gone through that book, and uh, you probably know that the book of Leviticus is a book that teaches us how to worship and serve and obey a holy God. It's a book that tells about the priests that would do that. So there's the sacrifices that are there and the priestly duties, and it talks a lot about the tabernacle that was out there in the wilderness. And so what we're going to see in these psalms, we'll see it tonight in Psalm 73 and 74, that we're going to get through tonight in our study, that it talks about the tabernacle, the sanctuary. And so that's why it correlates with Leviticus. And then when we get to Psalm 90, book 4, it's going to correlate with the book of Numbers. Why? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to Psalm 90. In just a couple of weeks, we'll get there. But let's begin to read Psalm 73. Actually, Psalm 73, you see that the title is the Psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph, um, just to uh, remind you that during the time of David, David, of course, wanted to build the temple. But the Lord said, David, you're not going to build the temple. Your hands are bloodied. You're a man of war. That your son Solomon, a man of peace, is going to build the temple. But as you go through those latter chapters of First Chronicles, you might recall in your own study, as, as we've done it here at Calvary Chapel, that David, what he did is he made preparations for his son. That is, he organized the, the priests. He uh, was led by the Lord. It wasn't that he just made it up himself. But the Lord gave instructions to David in making plans for the temple that Solomon would build. Uh, it was David that would uh, take the spoils from defeating the nations around him, Syria, the gold and the silver. They would be dedicated to the Lord to, to be used to build uh, in the temple. We also know that David would organize the Levites and the priests, uh, all as it was directed by the Lord. And he organized the, the gatekeepers and the musicians and the singers and all of that. Even the military, he had it all organized so that when he passed off the scene and his son Solomon came to the throne, that it was all ready, all organized for Solomon to build the temple, which took Solomon another seven years after he came um, and began to rule in Israel to build the temple. And so David got that all ready. And one of the things that we've already discussed quite extensively in the Psalms of David is that David was a worshiper, wasn't he? he worship was very much an important part of his life, and it should be an important part of our lives as well. And David wanted to make sure that the temple had temple worship that was there uh, being expressed, uh, not just the sacrifices and the duties of the priests, but that, that God would be glorified through that temple worship continually um, at all times. So David had some worship leaders, and one of those worship leaders was Asaph. Asaph also had a brother that was a worship leader, and his name, and I love his name, his name was He-Man. So I think that's a good name for a worship leader, He-Man. And, um, you know, I tried to talk Sue into um, naming one of our sons He-Man. <laughs> I thought that'd be cool, He-Man Figs, you know? <laughs> on, you know, on tackle, He-Man Figs, you know? That would sound cool, wouldn't it? So, actually, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't do that, but... If you're, you know, going to have a baby in the future, that's a biblical name, He-Nan. 
So He-Man was Asaph's brother. He was a worship leader. I think that they are two of the most well-known worship leaders. Matter of fact, we're going to see that He-Man wrote, I believe, two psalms uh, out of the psalms that are written here in the book of Psalms. And then also Jeju Thud uh, was another uh, worship leader. So worship was very much an important part. So this is where Asaph, um, his name comes in, a worship leader. And also keep this in mind when we get to Psalm 83, that he was also considered a seer that we're told in First Chronicles as well. That is, that he was a prophet. And um, that's going to play into as we look at Psalm 83, but we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Let's begin to look at Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. And in this psalm, what we're going to see is that he's dealing with something 3,000 years ago that we can deal with and struggle with even today. And he says that truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. So the psalm begins with God is good, and it ends with God is good, and we should draw near to him. But in between verses 1 and the end of the psalm, what we're going to see is that Asaph, the psalmist here, is expressing his struggle and hurt and frustration because what he sees is that it seems like the wicked, um, you know, seem to prosper, and the righteous struggle and they, they suffer. So what we're going to see in the psalm is uh, it deals with, it was painful for me to, to even think about this and look at this. How is it that the wicked seem to prosper, get away with things, nothing happens to them, but the righteous struggle? And that was a question that was debated among Job's friends. Remember that? And Job went through tremendous loss and suffering. Um, and in that, here's the thing, that we saw very clearly that Job, in that discussion with his friends, he didn't, you know, uh, lose his faith in God. He, he would express over and over again that God was great. But one thing that he did forget that is that God is good. And one of the main truths that you and I need to remember, because we all go through times where there's struggle and there's difficulties and there's, you know, hard times that we go through and we wonder, Lord, why am I going through this? And the thing to keep in mind, the thing that we need to, to keep not only in our hearts, but, but to, to remember continually is that God is good and God is good all the time. And he is still good, even the struggles that we went through. And Job forgot about that because remember Job was saying, Lord, I'm just a target for you. And why don't you just destroy me? Why are you out to get me? And he forgot about the goodness of God. And that's something that we can easily forget about when we go through loss or we go through hurt and frustrations. When we look at others and we say, Lord, how is it that they're getting away with it? Nothing's happening to them. And I'm going through all this struggle. And that's what Asaph is going through. Keep in mind that God is good. And that's the first key when we wrestle and struggle with questions, that God is good, and he's on the throne, and I am his child, and he loves me. So here Asaph begins the psalm with that, and he adds to such as are pure, or that word means committed to God. And now he's going to get his eyes off of God, that he is good, something that that you and I can do very easily as we go through struggles of life. As we go through difficulties, as we go through challenges, as we suffer ourselves, we get our eyes off God is good and God is there and God is gracious and God is wonderful and he loves me to get our eyes off of the, you know, him onto the problem or on people. And that's what Asaph begins to do in verse 2. But as for me. So Asaph says, God is good in Israel to such as pure in heart, but... It's a but that can get you in trouble. Now, you remember in Ephesians chapter 2 not long ago that uh, we went through Ephesians 2 that tells us that we are spiritually dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, has rescued us. And there's the buts that when God is involved in it, it, it's good, it's wonderful. I'm thankful for those buts that are in the Scripture. That, you know, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, 
But God, through his great mercy, has saved us. And when you go through the scriptures, it seems like there's a hopeless message and a dark message. But then God intervenes and he brings hope and he brings salvation to you and to me. Now, when we say but, oftentimes, we can be on a slippery slope. It's kind of like the psalmist is saying, God, you're so good. And, and, and those committed to you, oh, you know, you're good to them and you're wonderful. But... And it's that, but when we start to say it, that gets us into problems. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody says, I need to talk to you, Pastor Jeff. I, I want to, you know, express some things. And, oh, I love your teaching, and I love the church, but <laughs> it's like, okay, let's, you know, let's this bypass the niceties, and let's just get right to the buts. What is it? So, you know, people do that to you as well, and, and we go through those times. And that's kind of what the psalmist is doing. God, you're good here, you know, to such a pure in heart. But as for me, and he continues, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we see here he begins to express why he's struggling, why there's this pain. Asaph is slipping and he's sliding and is stumbling. And when that happens, it happens when we get our focus off of the Lord. It was Warren Worsby that said, Never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And here we see that he is on you know, a shaky ground because of his eyes off of the Lord. Now, one of the things that we have learned from David is that David constantly and continually in his prayers and the Psalms that he penned, that, Lord, you lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You're the rock of my salvation. And the Lord, we need to keep in mind, is not only is he good, but he is that place, the only true place of strength and stability, and it comes from him to give us solid ground to stand on. You remember that it was Jesus that he would say that you and I are to be the wise one that hears the sayings of his and then does them. It's like the one who builds their house upon a solid foundation. So when the winds come and the rain begins to you know, rise up and the wind blows against the house, that house is going to be able to stand. Jesus didn't say if the storms come. He said when the storms come. And storms come into our lives, don't they? All of us. And that's why it's very important that we not only know the Word of God, but we are standing on the Word of God and that our place of stability is our faith and trust in God, in Jesus Christ, and what His Word declares to you and to me. And that we're saying, Lord, you're my stability. You're my strength. I don't want to get my focus off of you and on everything else. Because what will happen is I'll begin to slip and slide and stumble and get discouraged and defeated. And here he says that I'm slipping, I'm stumbling here because I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now in verses 4 through, when we go through verse 14, we're going to see a description of the wicked that he's going to give here. And, and, you know, we focus on that, and that's a big part of the psalm. But I don't want us to miss here what he says, for I was envious of the boastful. That you and I, that we need to never be envious of the boastful. Whatever it is that they boast in, their beauty, their prosperity, their, their prominence, their power, we don't need to be envious of anyone. You know, envy is a terrible sin. It's a jealousy, and, and it can really do a lot of harm to us spiritually. You know, we become envious at times, and, and uh, you know, I, uh, I was um, talking to Sue, uh, my daughter Barbara, is at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, and she's out in Malta at the Extension Campus this semester. So it started out, uh, you know, about three weeks ago, a month ago, when she first went out there and touring the seven um, churches of Turkey and then going to Greece and, and you know, uh, traveling Paul's second missionary journey and then Malta, which sits in a Mediterranean Sea. And uh, she sent a picture of them uh, out on the beach. It's rocky. And they go, you know, snorkeling out there in clear water. And then they go up on the rocks and they're having a Bible study there in class. And I'm sitting there, oh, I'm so envious of that, you know. I need to go to Bible college is what I need to do. <laughs> And, um, and we, you know, we say that, but here's the thing. Envy, jealousy, 
can really get us into trouble when we become really envious of somebody or jealous of somebody. And when you look at the scriptures, you see the reason that David was pursued by Saul because Saul was what? Envious and jealous of David. It seemed like David, he's got the anointing of the Lord, which he did. He killed Goliath, and he was Saul's armor bearer, and he did worship to Saul, and he served Saul. He was without any fault, the scripture tells us. But it tells us that as David went out to battle with Saul, that the women of the cities were singing songs like, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And he became very, very envious and jealous of David. Why doesn't you just give him the throne right now? And he desired to kill David. And so envy and jealousy is a terrible sin that we can have when we're envious of somebody else or something else. We can even be, I need to be careful that I don't become envious and jealous of somebody else's ministry. How come I don't have, you know, their building or their popularity or their budget or their staff or, you know, whatever it might be. And any of us can fall into that. Listen. None of us have any reason to be envious or jealous of anyone. God has a plan and a purpose for you that is a perfect plan and a wonderful plan. He has something, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. In other words, what he has you to do, only you can do. No one else can do. And that's why he has placed you where you are. That's why he gifts you the way he wants to gift you. And he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. And you don't have to look at somebody else and say, I want to be like them. Or why aren't I like them and be envious of them? You be who you are. And where God has placed you and the giftings that he wants to give to you. And you just keep traveling with the Lord and staying close. And he's going to do marvelous things in your lives. So that's what's so wonderful about being a part of the body of Christ is that he has something for each and every one of us. And we don't have to be envious of that person at work. We don't have to be envious of, of whoever it is. But God made you unique and he loves you and he wants to do a wonderful work in you. So here he is, he's envious and we can do that. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked and then he begins to describe them for there is no pangs in their death but their strength is firm it seems like they're just so firm in their strength you know there's no weakness and and they're so solid and he goes on in verse 5 for they are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men and therefore their verse 6 their pride uh, serves as their necklace violence covers them like a garment so he, he thinks here as he looks at them, I'm envious because they seem so strong, it's firm, they're unmovable. Those who are wicked, the boastful. He goes on and he says they're not troubled and they're not plagued. But here's something that we need to understand. That the psalmist is wrong. That those who have abundance and those who, you know, are boastful and those who seem to have it all, you know, sometimes we think that the person who has the prestige and the popularity and the wealth and all that, they, they don't have any problems. They have problems. They just have different problems. But here's the thing. Without anyone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're going to be plagued in their heart and in their souls. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or you're poor, if you're popular or nobody knows you. Because God created us and made us to worship him and have a close relationship with him. To know him. And to have the abundant life that he has for us comes only through him. And that's why I believe that when we look at people in our society, it seems like they have it all. It seems like they, they don't have any problems. They got so much popularity and money and, and the cameras and all of this, the famous movie stars or the, you know, the, the rock star or the athlete, whoever it might be, the, the politician. But they are plagued if they don't have Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, those who seem to have it all will live in bizarre lifestyles because they don't have Jesus, and they're empty. And they're trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And all of the money and all of the prestige and all of the, the popularity, all the power, whatever it might be, is not going to bring true satisfaction and fulfillment. And that is the deception of the enemy and of the world. 
Folks, listen, I hope you and I here at Calvary Chapel that we are far along in our walk and our relationship with the Lord to realize that it isn't things that bring satisfaction to you and to me. God blesses us, yes, and every good gift comes from above and we can be thankful for those things. But true satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and peace comes from a personal relationship in Jesus Christ, whether you have a lot or you have a little, whether you have a name or nobody knows your name. And by the way, God knows your name. And as we have that relationship and journey with Jesus Christ, then you're going to be the one that's going to have the abundant life that he has. Oh, yeah, we'll have problems. We have difficulties. But we have the Lord. So don't think that they don't have any struggles, that they're not plagued. And, and, and there's an emptiness that can happen. There are difficulties that do come their way. And in verse 7 or verse 6, their pride serves as their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Pride is, again, a very terrible sin. It's what the sin that caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. He was prideful. And you know what? Pride is something that we need to guard against, and violence covers them. And it's one of the things that when you read uh, later on in the history of Israel, when it split the house of Israel, Jeroboam too was ruling, and then Uzziah down south in Judah, both those uh, nations were very prosperous. This is right before the captivity of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And one of the characteristics was as they were doing well economically, and there's a lot of prosperity going on in both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but one of the characteristics was violence, that they were very violent and ripping each other off and and all of this. And here, violence covers them like a garment. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish, as the psalmist continues. They have abundance. They have abundance in things but they're not experiencing the abundant life that Christ has for us. It's in Revelation chapter 3, one of the churches that Jesus wrote a letter to, the last one, the church of Laodicea. And Laodicea is interesting, you know, as you read their history, that Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was a beautiful city, and it was a city where a lot of entertainment was at. The Roman circus was always there, and people came from all over the Roman Empire to Laodicea because of the beauty, because of the wealth, because of the entertainment that was going on continually. It was, it was probably a little bit like a little Vegas is what it was. And in the letter that Jesus wrote to that church, that you say that you are rich and are wealthy and have need of nothing, that don't you know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Because they considered themselves, we have need of nothing. Now, I know that there are wonderful Christians in Vegas and families and things like that, but again, I pray that we would be far along enough in our walk to know that behind all the glitter and the lights and the shows and the popularities and wherever it is, Vegas or whatever city or even in our own lives, in our own you know, communities, that behind all of that, that there is emptiness and darkness and there's sin to those who don't know Jesus Christ. And anyone who believes that I have it made because I have things and richness and money and prosperity apart from Jesus Christ, we're playing the fool. And those things will go away. And that's why Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? What good is it? What good is it? He tells us the parable of the rich young fool, fool that, that built more and more and more. And it wasn't a sin that he had more and God blessed him. But as the parable Jesus told it said that he wasn't rich towards God. That's where we're rich. And you who are here today, that have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and living for him, you are rich. That's what makes you rich. And that's where the abundant life is going to come from. So here we see that he's describing them. They rebel against God. They're violent. They, they seem like uh, they, they're very prideful. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak lawfully. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They, they speak very worldly. You know, that's one of the reasons why it's really important that 
that you come here, you know, on Sundays. Be a part of the church because a lot of you are out there in the world where you hear the worldly things and the language and the dirty jokes and all of that, and it wears on you, doesn't it? It wears on you. To be in a place where we speak about the things of God and being with brothers and sisters that can edify you and lift you up and, and encourage you in, in the discussion of the Lord and the words of God and, and edification and exhortation. And that's why it's good to dwell together in the house of God, just as you're doing here tonight. But verse 10, therefore his people return here and the waters are a full cup or drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? In other words, they're mocking God. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. You know, they even speak against God. It's as if Asaph has come to the conclusion in watching the ungodly, why should I have a clean heart or live in innocence? You know, why should I do that? It isn't worth it. He goes on and he says um, that in verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. In verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Have you ever felt that way where you think, why should I just do what is right? Why should I, I really focus on living for the Lord when it seems like they're getting away with stuff and I wanted that promotion and they gave it to the other guy because I'm a Christian and I wouldn't cut the corners or, you know, go to, you know, the bar afterwards with all the guys. You know, I paid a price for that. Or why should I, you know, uh, just continue and in, in be in one that's trying to do right when everybody just makes fun of me or comes down on me. Why should I do that? It seems like they're the ones that prosper. And I'm sure that perhaps that some of you have felt that way. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel that way. Why should I do what is right? What difference does it make? Because I've had people express that to me all the time. And I think that perhaps you have as well. And this is a psalm that we can take them to. And he says, it was very painful for me to understand this. I can't even speak about it. I can't even think about it. And as he's here at this point of, that's why I'm struggling and that's why I'm slipping. And you see, that's what Satan would want us to focus on. And he would have want us to focus on that and be remaining in that frustration and struggle. So we just throw up our hands and we just say, forget it. Why should I just, you know, live for the Lord? Why should I do what is right? While in Rome, I just might as well act like, you know, the Romans do. Or in Babylon, act like the Babylonians. Or in the world, just act very worldly. What difference does it make? It makes a big difference. Because why? Because of verse 17. Here he is, he's struggling with all of this. He, he says, I can't even think about it. It seems like the wicked prosper. And, and he says, I, I can't even understand why it is. It's too painful until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. That's the key. It wasn't until Asaph went into the presence of the Lord, the sanctuary, where he then began to have an eternal perspective and realize that the wicked are not going to prosper they are not going to prosper, and that's what we need to remember. We need to make sure that we have an eternal perspective on things. You see, the enemy wants you to just have a worldly perspective. But we are to keep our eyes on the things above, as Paul wrote in Colossians 3, not on the things of this world. And as we have that eternal perspective, we realize that, hey, without Jesus Christ, they really don't have anything. All oh, they have a lot of stuff. But it gives us a whole different perspective. And then it gives us the perspective of, as the psalmist is going to write here, that the inner their way is destruction. And he says, as I understand their end. And then that causes us to say, wow, I need to be praying for them. I need to be witnessing to them. I need to have a heart for them and lift them up. Because I'm the one that's rich. I'm the one that's blessed. I'm the one that has the good news of the gospel, and I want to share it with others. So a whole different perspective when we have an eternal perspective on things. And so Asaph said, it's when I went into the sanctuary. 
And again, that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we continue to gather as a church, that we continue to encourage each other because we can remind each other to these things and edify and build each other up in these things. And you hear the word of God and you're going, yes, of course. I've been so frustrated because my eyes have been focused on, you know, this and that. And, and it seems like, you know, that nothing's happening when um, I wonder and it's painful for me to, to think about how this person's getting away with that and this situation is getting out of hand and nobody seems to care or shortcuts are being taken that aren't honoring to God. And then you begin to see that nobody's getting away with anything. And that's the thing that you and I need to remember. No one's getting away with anything. God sees and he knows. And so the psalmist, when he says, until I went into the sanctuary, God did not understood their end. And surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. I know how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, the Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. So we see here that, again, as the psalmist gets the right perspective that there is eternal consequences for them. Destruction. And it's not good. You know, these verses, verses 18 through 20, maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. 1700s. Very intelligent man. Very, very smart man. He graduated from Yale when he was 14 years old. And these verses here, and he didn't have very good eyesight, and so he would, you know, read his sermons. He would have to literally do this, and he would read them, you know, and he had big Coke bottle glasses because, you know, they didn't have nice glasses like what we have today. And he would read it, and he used verses 18 through 20 in a sermon that's one of the most famous sermons that ever has been, you know, given in the church. And it was a sermon that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he used these verses, and it brought revival throughout the, you know, northeast United States. And he just read it, and, and people were repenting and coming to the Lord. And it just the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's a sermon, I believe, that you can probably pull up on, online and read it, and you ought to read it. But it comes from these verses here. In verse 20, God is not asleep He's not asleep, and he knows, and he sees all. And in verse 21, thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind, as he continues. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. It's like he gets God's perspective on things, and he realized, oh, I was so foolish to think that way. To be just focused on that and them, and it seems like they're not getting away. They're not getting away with anything. First John chapter 2, verse 17, The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And that's really what he expresses in these next verses, in verses 25 through 27. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. We do fail at times, don't we? I think every single one of us, that our hearts and our flesh, we fail, not only with that, but just with challenges and difficulties that come our way. We can get downcast, and we can get frustrated, and, and we get tired. And that's what the psalmist is being honest about, and we can be honest to the Lord about that. But the answer is this, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And to remember that he is our strength and he's our portion. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. And I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so very important that you and I, that the key when we feel frustrated, when our heart fails and our flesh is weak and we wonder and we struggle and we strain and we're slipping. The key is what? Draw near to God. He is our strength. And he sees all. And he is going to encourage us and bless us and remind us through his word that he is the one that brings riches to us and blessing to us in our lives. Psalm 74, very quickly here. Psalm written when Babylon came to take Judah captive in Jerusalem. 
and the temple would be destroyed. And so it is a contemplation of Asaph. And you might be thinking a contemplation of Asaph. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You just told us that Asaph was the worship leader during the days of Jesus. Now, I know enough about the Bible to know that the Babylonians destroyed the temple in when? 536 B.C. 586 B.C., excuse me. When the Babylonians came into Judah on the captivity, there was three waves of captivity. The first wave was in 605 B.C. It's about 100 and almost 120 years after the Assyrians took the ten northern tribes off. That happened in about 722 B.C. Well, in 605 B.C., here comes the Babylonians flexing their muscles. And they come into Jerusalem. They don't destroy Jerusalem, but they come in and they take the choice men away to, Jude, uh, to Babylon to be trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government, and that included Daniel. Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniels, as well as his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's see, their Hebrew names were Azariah, Mishael, and what else? Hananiah. Thank you. So if you're in my Old Testament survey class, you get extra credit for that. So, But thank you. That's what the Hebrew name. So they, those guys went off, and they were trained into the affairs of the Babylonian government. And Daniel, of course, would be prophesying. Well, a second wave of, of, of the Babylonian troops came in to take some of the captives away, and that was in 597 B.C., and that was Ezekiel was taken off into captivity. And Ezekiel, he's off in the captivity, and he begins to minister. He's not in Babylon. He's in north of Babylon to a different place. Meanwhile, during all of that, who's left behind the prophet in Judah? It was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he's ministering, and, and he's there, and he's warning the leaders, and particularly Zedekiah, who for the last you know, 11 years from 597 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came in and said, Zedekiah, you're going to be the leader. You're the, going to be ruling over Judah. And Zedekiah for 11 years was there, but then he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And as he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, it was Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. that came in this time and leveled Jerusalem. He leveled the city. He destroyed Solomon's temple. And so Jeremiah had been ministering during that time, telling them, that, hey, you know what? You need to realize that judgment is going to come. Don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If, if you just live peacefully, everything will be okay. But if you rebel, then destruction is going to come. And as you read the book of Jeremiah, like Jeremiah, and he, he would take a, a pot and he took the leaders out in the valley of Hinnon where they burned the trash and he took the pot and he threw it down and he broke it and he said, this is what's going to happen to you guys if you rebel. Destruction, devastation, death's going to come. And, and he's warning them. And Zedekiah, what does he do? He rebels. So this talks about the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. So how can it be a contemplation of Asaph? Asaph was around 1000 B.C. If you want a timeline that really help you in the Old Testament, 2000 B.C., Abraham, right? 1500 B.C., Moses. 1000 B.C., David. The temple being destroyed, 586 B.C. And then they would come back and rebuild the temple. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, was 400 B.C. And then 400 B.C. to the birth of Christ are the silent years, about 400 years. So that's an easy timeline. So how can this be a contemplation of Asaph when it's talking about something that happened over 400 years at the time that he's ministering? From 1000 B.C. to 586 B.C. Well, come back next week and we'll talk about it, all right? Actually, I'll tell you now. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably a descendant of Asaph that wrote this. So a descendant of Asaph writing about the destruction of the temple. I was really hoping to get into it, but there's too much in here to really get into it tonight. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, we got through one psalm. And a very important psalm because it deals with all of us that we can look at others and we become envious, we struggle, we strain. Lord, we wonder. We wonder if you see us. We wonder 
Why should we continue in following after you? It seems like that you're not paying attention. It doesn't really matter, but it does, Lord. And I'm so thankful that we come here into the sanctuary, just as Asaph did 3,000 years ago. And you tell us that you love us, that you see us, and that your promises are true for us, that our strength is in you. And Lord, that abundant life is not found just in material things. It's found in a personal relationship with you. And we do thank you for what we have, Lord. We thank you for, uh, Lord, just your abundance that you give to us, truly. But Lord, we want to be rich towards you. That's the priority. We want to be close to you and draw near to you. And I pray tonight, if anyone is here, that maybe you're struggling, maybe not particularly in seeing that, that how, oh man, the, the wicked around me seem to prosper. They boast or they, they you know, don't care about others. They, they just take advantage of others. Lord, that we know that we don't have to be envious. But, Lord, that we would know that the end of their way is destruction. And, Help us have a right perspective on things, an eternal perspective that, Lord, that really they're poor and they're lost. And that we would have a heart to pray and share with them, to know that we're the ones that are rich, that have Christ, whether we're rich materially or not. It's, it's spiritually. It's the priority to know you and to love you and walk with you. And Lord, I pray that we would always keep an eternal perspective on things. And Lord, help us keep our eyes on you. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here tonight, and I know the coffee shop is full, and those who are listening on live stream, maybe there's someone listening tonight or later on the radio that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation, it's not the church but it is Jesus personally who came and died for you and desires to have a personal, close relationship with you as you surrender your life to him and put your faith and trust in him for forgiveness of sin and salvation. He loves you. That's why he came and died for you. And he is your salvation. There is none other. And as you recognize your need for the Savior of the world, there's forgiveness right relationship with the Father and the hope of eternal life. Will you give your life to Jesus if you've never done that? And you cry out to him right where you are that Jesus, I come to you. I come to you as a sinner in need of forgiveness and I believe that you died for my sins and you are the source of that forgiveness. Forgive me. Wash me clean. That you made atonement for me on that cross and you cried out, it is finished. I believe that. Thank you for dying for my sins. And I believe you're alive. You rose from the grave. And I give my life to you as Lord and Savior. And I thank you for loving me and for saving me and for hearing my prayer. Help me to live for you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if anybody here prayed that prayer tonight, I'm just going to stay here, and I want you to come up and pray with me and tell me the decision that you made when we conclude here in just a few minutes. But for all of us, Lord, may we always keep that eternal perspective and then share the riches that we have with others 